each of us are connected to food systems. So you and I have a vested interest in understanding its workings, challenges, and potential solutions. In my role at Google, one of my responsibilities is to ask, what are the impacts of our food choices? Not just on our individual health and well-being, but also on the food systems we are a part of, our producers, our suppliers, society, and the planet. I believe we all have a responsibility to ask big questions like this one. The answers can open a world of possibility. I invite you to join me in meeting the leaders who have dared to step up to answer these bigger questions to create a better food future for us all. This is Food Lab Talk. Thanks for joining me for another Food Lab Talk. I am Michael Bakker. Many of our change makers this season have spoken about how they're fighting food loss and waste in the private sector or at a nonprofit organization. But for systems to truly change, I believe it's important for all sectors of society to be involved. The timeline for systemic change is rather long relative to our lifetime. So how do you sort of set the stage as if it were a play so that the props we need to build the food system we want are eventually the only ones that are available? And you can do that through policies, through incentives, through different structures so that disparate entities and non-traditional partners start to see what's in it for them in new ways. And at this point, you know, given projected climate impacts, security of supply, inflation, the stakes are too high not to work together. And I think you're really de-risking the system when you focus on preventing food waste, which is really just maximizing food use and putting it to its best and highest use in the system. Ashley Zanoli has been a food waste warrior for more than 17 years, working on various state and national government initiatives to support sustainable food management, water quality, and climate sustainability. While at the Environmental Protection Agency, Ashley's teams developed a community-based social marketing campaign, Food, Too Good to Waste, to inspire behavior change and reduce food wasted at home. Today, she advises on the development and implementation of a national strategy to reduce wasted food and increase organics recycling across the supply chain. On today's episode, Ashley shares how her career path has transformed the way she thinks about protecting the environment and addressing climate change, her learnings on how to guide consumer behavior change, and her perspective on the role of government in combating food waste. Here's my interview with Ashley Zanoli. Let's start with why food waste? So how did you get involved in that? That's a great question. So back in 2010, I transitioned out of leading some of our agency efforts on environmental justice and your toxics into this role, co-leading a group called the West Coast Climate and Materials Management Forum. At the time, we had a few dozen state and local governments, and the whole focus was on materials management. I don't have an environmental background. I was going to medical school and kind of dropped out, and I was interested in environmental policy because I designed a biodiesel plant my senior year at Northwestern. Um, I noticed that there weren't a lot of policymakers with hard science backgrounds, so I became really interested. 
I've always been passionate about doing what I can to help protect the environment and address climate change. So when this role came up, it was just eye-opening to know that there was this totally different way of looking at and thinking about climate. I thought, well, it's just the car I drive and the building I live in, but it's really the stuff we use. It's the clothes I wear. It's the food I eat. It's the flights I take to go on vacation. So when you look out greenhouse gas emissions through this consumption-based lens, food really rises to the top as one of the highest impact materials. Um, this was really driven home years later when Project Drawdown looked at the top 200 climate solutions that are peer-reviewed and reducing food waste through prevention ranked number one. So I started working on food really through that lens of sustainable consumption and production, which is kind of a wonky policy space. Food touches us all. It's essential to our survival. Um, it's not as scary as talking about water. <laughs> um, and it symbolizes so much to all of us, whether you know it's showing love to your friends and family or alleviating anxiety maybe around the potential scarcity of food. It touches our lives in so many different ways, and the potential to drive environmental outcomes was surprisingly profound. And I just thought it was the perfect proof of concept place to invest as we think about how to consume and produce resources more sustainably. On a parallel track, I was supporting our EPA headquarters office in developing the Food Recovery Challenge and working with businesses on reducing food waste. So there was this kind of nice nexus. But a lot of the work I'm known for was really born out of that climate group which by the time I left about five years later had hundreds of state and local governments involved. It was a really rewarding part of my career. Could you talk a little bit more about that? What is it that you see as the opportunity from a government policy perspective as it relates to something that I think is so allegedly well understood, but I think so loosely defined, food loss and waste? Yeah, so I'm admittedly, not a huge fan of the term food waste. I think the term was born out of a solid waste space where government agencies like EPA were tasked with reducing the impacts from landfills. Food, food waste, is one of the single largest and least recovered materials entering landfills. A lot of state and local governments have that same authorizing environment to address those environmental issues. So reducing food waste is reducing food waste going to landfills. But what we're really talking about is maximizing food use. How do we put food to its best and highest use? And that's that aspirational hierarchy I've seen a million times that EPA really wisely developed, you know, prioritizes prevention. And when we talk about food loss, you said food loss and waste, that's just referring to food that's grown to feed people that doesn't ultimately feed people. And that loss is happening before it enters the retail stage. So it's upstream of retail, but it's actually after harvest. So there are other opportunities there I'll get into. But when we think about food waste, I like to talk about wasted food if we're going to have to use the word waste at all. So let's reclaim waste as a verb and not talk about food waste as something that's inevitable. I hear you loud and clear. Now from a food policy perspective or from a government policy perspective, where do you see today still the broadest opportunities, whether it's at the local, state, or federal level? Yeah, and back to your question about you know, how government can be a key player as well. You know, we're really setting the tone and defining success around the space. So the UN Sustainable Development Goals, Goal 12.3, around sustainable consumption and production, is to have food loss and waste by 2030 
for consumers and consumer-facing businesses. That goal was adopted by the U.S. as well. A ton of companies have adopted it. And government can really set the frame of giving us a space to orient towards, setting that large goal that we can all contribute to. And government's not going to do it alone, but particularly the federal government setting those goals encourages others to collaborate and follow suit. You can see a lot of state and local governments have adopted similar goals, but from a policy perspective, I think the way the this work has evolved is not just looking at, okay, how do we limit food going to landfills? How do we have zero food waste going to landfills to how do we also reduce the overall generation of uneaten food in the system? So I like to talk about generation goals. I was at Oregon DEQ for a few years, helping them develop some policy around that. And what that means is there's a food loss and waste protocol. It defines food loss and waste, and it, it defines how we measure it based on the destinations it goes to. So there's food grown to feed people. It's not feeding people. Where does it go? It's going to the landfill. It's being composted or anaerobically digested to get energy out of it. It's being donated. It's going down the sink. There are all these different destinations. So what a generation goal, and these are developed at state, federal, local levels, it really incentivizes reducing the overall amount of uneaten food in the system that could have fed people versus just looking at, okay, this food didn't go to the landfill, so that's our only goal. So you can complement these landfill diversion goals with generation-based goals to really drive action and prevention. The other thing that governments at all levels can do that I think is um, proven to be quite effective is develop public-private partnerships. So I spent years of my life socializing opportunities to develop public-private partnerships on this topic that not only go after that, let's reduce food waste by 50%, but let's also set some prevention targets so that we're incentivizing working upstream. So it's less about food waste, more about food use, and having public and private entities commit to those same goals, measure, target, take action. That's the traditional kind of global framework we've also adopted in the US, um, and it's worked really well. So. What happened was after, again, years of conversations with state governments across the West Coast, local governments, I was leading that think tank, so I was really involved with them anyways. I was advising grocers and brand manufacturers and restaurant industry through those associations on behalf of EPA. So I was kind of like in this unique space where I had a lot of access to candid conversations through those relationships. We were able to build value propositions that showed, hey, none of us are going to address some of these big issues in the supply chain unless we work together. And the model that it's adopted off of is from the UK RAP. Uh, RAP is the Waste Resources Action Program. And when they started Love Food, Hate Waste, their consumer campaign, they also started the Courtauld Commitment that allowed their, their business partners to partner with the public sector in really meaningful ways around the campaign and then use actionable data to do work in their own house, you know, within their own four walls. So that model for what was called the Courtauld Commitment was adopted by the West Coast governors, the mayors of the five major cities. They represented the Pacific Coast Collaborative. There are other collaboratives like this of governors and mayors in regional parts of the U.S. And the Pacific Coast Collaborative had some major areas of climate change they're working on, um, ocean acidification, and food was one of them. So this made a lot of sense to fit that under that umbrella, have some alignment between state and local policies, and then partner with the, the retailers, the institutions, 
the hospitality industry, restaurants, and set those common goals and then provide support. So there's common messaging going out to consumers and then there's support for those kind of prevention interventions that can take place throughout the supply chain. There's the potential to collaborate outside of antitrust issues around um, key areas within the food system like dairy and meat so that growers are getting what they should be paid for their product. There are more market opportunities for what's not currently making it to market. There's more efficient distribution. And then ideally, there's more consumer acceptance around some of those changes that are playing out in the consumer-facing business environment. So it's a really effective way of marrying government policy to kind of drive change and then supporting businesses and incentivizing them to make those changes and then measuring success across the board. I think sometimes we tend to measure at a kind of top-down national or international level, but you don't develop those actionable data sets to make the changes that are needed to ultimately have a better food system that serves us all. I'm so curious when I hear you speak, Ashley, it's about the time orientation and the impact that you believe that needs to happen today. Because I think you probably like few others have such deep insight into the scale of the challenge or the opportunity. And I think the time horizon you're working on is actually very long-term because getting everybody to collaborate and to come along just takes years. How does it feel for you as a change maker? It makes me feel really satisfied when I wash the floors. <laughs> Seeing that immediate change is very gratifying. And, um, you know, in the same way, eating candy feels satisfying. But if you want a really nourishing meal, committing to tackling long-term intractable problems is, I think, even more satisfying. You know, it's hard to work on such a long time scale. And I think it's because the timeline for systemic change is rather long relative to our lifetime. So I really try to think about my work and how I contribute to the agency I've worked for, how I contribute to supporting the organizations I've advised and, and supported as staging. So how do you sort of set the stage as if it were a play so that the props we need to build the food system we want are eventually the only ones that are available? And you can do that through policies, through incentives, through different structures so that disparate entities and non-traditional partners start to see what's in it for them in new ways. And at this point, you know, given projected climate impacts, security of supply, inflation, the stakes are too high not to work together. And I think you're really de-risking the system when you focus on preventing food waste, which is really just maximizing food use and putting it to its best and highest use in the system. It continues to focus on you. So where do you find your energy to keep going on a daily basis while it feels that maybe at the end of the day, the candy is gone, the floor is clean. How do you ultimately find the energy to show up again the following day? I mean, it's such an evolving space. You know, I thought so much of this would take a really long time. But once you have enough proof of concept projects around off the ground, you have kind of the policy landscape that's incentivizing prevention and donation in nuanced ways. You have actionable data that is allowing us to tell success stories that inspire peer learning within the private sector, among related businesses, within you know government organizations across broad regions in the in the U.S. 
it's energizing. You have to celebrate small wins. And it's been remarkable to see how much change has happened. I mean, even just looking at Refit just released their new insights engine. You know, some of the solutions, I really wonder how much data is behind some of them, but they really give us a way to orient and kind of defend the investment in some of these changes that make such common sense when it comes to the economic, environmental, and community benefits. So it just feels easy to have energy to keep going because it's work that benefits us all. I think why I love working on wasted food in the food system is it just shines a light on what's possible in so many other areas of the world in which we live, whether it's sustainable apparel or avoiding single-use plastics. That kind of collaboration and setting like common aspirational goals and then building the support structures to achieve them, it just translates into all areas of our work and all areas of our lives. I mean, just in working on this topic specifically, I have worked on other you know, materials. I'm just most known for my work on food. It's changed my life too. I think when you start to really dig into your own consumption patterns, we conflate so many of our emotional needs with the things we buy and eat. I mean, my family likes to talk about food instead of their emotions. And I think as you really start to tackle and, you know, peel apart our relationship to what we need to survive, it's just, it's a really beautiful way to experience the world and your assumptions about it. Yeah. So on this season of the podcast, I've spoken with a variety of individuals and it's actually very clear to me that addressing, and I know you're going to tell me it's the wrong term, but I would use it food loss and waste. It's a systems challenge. So based on your experiences today, from where do you believe are still the biggest opportunities, either on the production or on the consumption side going forward in the US? Yeah, that's a really good question, a really big question. You know, when I first started, I guess, developing talking points around helping make this a, a topic we should all pay attention to, I always talked about wasted food or wasted nutrients. And I still think we have a long way to go and better bringing nutritionists to the table and leveraging the work that's happening in the public health community with the work that's happening in the food loss and waste community. It seems like a real untapped opportunity. Something that drives me a little batty is how much, and having done a lot of environmental justice work, how much we go out to the same communities or even tribes and we're in our own silos, but nobody deals with the food in a vacuum. You know, like how do we start to marry avoidable single-use plastics with reducing food loss and waste. Um, I know restaurants are really struggling with that. How do we start to marry reducing compost contamination with composting wasted food, but also making sure you're taking advantage of opportunities to prevent wasting food that could have been eaten? On the measurement side, I think we have a long way to go in understanding how much food is being wasted that was edible and what types of food was it and why did it go to waste and where did it go to waste? I mean, that's the benefit of having daily tracking and food service environments. You start to glean that sort of insight. When I was in Oregon, I led some pretty big research studies with Portland State University, but one of them was trying to figure out, is there a better way to measure? Because after we had done that consumer campaign, food to good to waste, it had been tested on all these cities and states, like, okay, we're seeing about 50% reductions in households often. But how do you measure that at scale? How do you measure the absence of a problem happening at scale? And that's where understanding how much food could have been eaten is being wasted can help us right-size infrastructure solutions. 
so just getting back to that study in Oregon, about 70% of the food that we found in the trash in the compost pile was food that could have been eaten at some point in time. But that's not typical. Most of the data you see is, wow, there are this many tons of food waste. Oh my God, let's build large infrastructure to, to recycle it, get energy out of it, make compost out of it. Soil health is needed. Without soil health, we can't survive. A survival is riding on soil health. So there are other benefits I don't want to lose sight of. But the reality is, is that, you know, venture capital companies, large technology companies that want to come in and build this infrastructure are looking at that. This is our feedstock. We want to make bioplastics around this much food waste. So unless we have data that shows us, well, hey, not all of that was inevitable. Let's try to build in those opportunities for prevention and for better donation, for donating what's needed for donor education around what's needed so that we're not creating really perverse incentives and unintended consequences as we try to transform the system. The amount of food waste is not all waste. And there are co-benefits beyond greenhouse gas reduction related to soil health that I think are still not quite part of our analyses. You see a lot of life cycle assessment in the space that acknowledges it, but it's so hard to measure. It's not included. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of what's most important, I think soil health rises to the top, measuring in a way that at least acknowledges some of the perverse incentives, working upstream with producers to create markets and new channels, and at the household level, trying to shift consumer expectations so that the big changes that can take place in the system are not only possible, but really palatable. Thank you for all those insights. So going back to Project Drawdown. I think you could make the argument that the solutions of our challenges are ultimately known. There are so many organizations that have done amazing research, refat, drawdown, you name it. So two opposite ends of the same question. What is holding us back of not following up on the known solutions? Or another way of phrasing the question from how might we accelerate the execution of the known solutions? So I think there are two ways. Public-private partnerships and a national behavior change consumer campaign. Capital is also part of the picture, and I think Refed's been really instrumental in unlocking some of that. Obviously, more money is needed in both the public and private space to, to take advantage of those solutions and deploy them at scale. But public-private partnerships are going to be one of the most effective ways to do them because when you're dealing with supply chain issues, so much of that work can't be done alone by any single entity. So having that collaborative structure and common funding to try out some of those solutions and scale them up across a space is really important. You know, I think about solutions like, like appeal sciences could spray a whole orchard and grocers could collaborate and take different sizes and nothing would be left behind. I know there are a lot of issues with labor, you know, the grower production level, as well as all the way down through retail and, and restaurants, but it's kind of been a pipe dream of mine for a long time. And the piece that I think can expedite the speed at which solutions can be deployed and, and really become normalized, the consumer campaign is, is like the umbrella to unlock that because it just allows those kind of solutions to be better accepted. I think that's really what's lagging is, is like the appetite for taking some of that on because people are worried consumers won't want it. I think it's hard when you do surveying. People are really bad at responding to something they've never had. <laughs> so I think that can be tricky. I love making data-driven solutions. 
a lot of my career has been spent developing more actionable data sets, but it's really important to understand the limitations of the data and that some things that are really important just can't be measured. So let's take risks. Let's take them together. Public-private partnerships, I think at a regional scale, can really allow this to, to take off exponentially. And then using that campaign over a long period of time, like seven years, to have more coordinated efforts that make some of these changes to be seen as less risky. So one of the benefits of these public-private partnerships is that they actually set targets and support for data collection and technical assistance that can't be achieved when you do that at a national level. So sometimes what is visibly looks like a ton of leadership can actually disincentivize driving some of the solutions on the ground because you set an incentive structure where you get the same kind of PR credit as saying you're going to do something versus actually doing something. There's a lot of concern and, you know, I get it about reporting more granular data to the federal government. So, you know, signing up for Champions 2030, for example, is amazing and we want to track that. But the companies that sign up for that, what's their incentive to also join the Pacific Coast Food Waste Commitment where they have a more measurable target, they're reporting data, you know, they're taking on projects. I think you can make the case that those groups that have joined have seen tremendous results and they're able to glean and take action on insights their employees are sharing, but it's complicated. So Ashley, we talk quite a bit about systems change and actually how to guide system change because I don't think you can ultimately drive systems change. So what are some of your learnings and insight as it relates to guiding change in the system? Great question. So in terms of guiding change, I think it's really easy to jump in the solution space because it's more fun than wrestling with the problem. So while the problem around food loss and waste has been defined very well globally, when you want to engage in that space or any other, really clearly defining what specific problem you're trying to solve, why that's the problem. I'm a huge fan of toddler level questioning. It actually is called the five whys in the Lean Six Sigma world. So why, why, why? Understand the assumptions that are underlying the problem you think you're trying to solve. And I think when you go down that road, sometimes you figure out, well, we're trying to solve the wrong problem. So if they had jumped into the solution space, it kind of would have been a waste of time. So hold off, identify the problem, paint a really clear vision of what long-term success looks like. Know you're going to take steps to get there, but that clear vision needs to be launched far in front of the problem so you can see it out there. And then you start getting into the solution space and you invite as many collaborators with as many diverse perspectives as possible to point out your blind spots before you you take it on and you implement it. Um, at this point, I think we're pretty far along in doing proof of concept work on a lot of what's been happening in this space. So um, scaling is more appropriate, but even in that vein, you can kind of de-risk what that looks like by incubating some of that implementation before it's done at a really broad scale. And I would add to that, Ashley, it's to not get tied to your chosen solutions. Absolutely. Because... <laughs> yeah. Be pretty agnostic. Like leave your ego at the door. Don't be afraid to look stupid. Because the world will change multiple times. Uh, so it's not the solution, it is the outcome that you're focused on. Yes. Yes. And I don't think I mentioned this before, but this is the key thing that has guided me in anything I have taken on. It is the goal to work myself out of a job. So 
that is what we should be up to. If we do any of this well, you know, I think about upcycling. I helped Upcycled Food Association get started. And if we really do our job in that world, upcycling doesn't exist because it's the new norm. We don't need consumer food waste campaigns because those are the new norms. And one of the funniest things that always has cracked me up is how it's such a kind of innovative, sexy place to work in the environmental world is working on food loss and waste. But none of this is new. You know, the first consumer campaign really was during the Great Depression. And these are all old behaviors. They're just not the norm anymore because we're busy and we have different priorities in our lives. Understandably so. Thank you for sharing all of that. I want to go back to you at your earlier states of your career. If you think back to what you knew then and what you know now from driving systems change, what are the things you have learned to be aware of or to leave? What does it take to influence a system? So I think one of the things I've learned is to translate up, down, across, sideways. You're constantly translating to your audience based on their needs and their concerns. And I think I've learned how to do that better internally and help others in my network do that internally in their organization. So I would say when you look at, you know, collaborating broadly, public, private, nonprofit sectors, the people who work in this, unless you're in, you know, a nonprofit explicitly dedicated to working on reducing wasted food and food systems, you're marginal in your organization. You know, maybe you have someone else on your team. Maybe you have a really small team, but you're kind of fringe to what else is going on. If you're in the government, you're in a non-regulatory program. So you're authorized to do the work, but you're, you're under scrutiny. And if political whims change, you know, you may not even have funding to do your work. So like collaborating allows all of the folks who do that work and those different organizations and community-based groups to support each other. So you essentially are able to have this really broad support system and you can translate why we're doing the work within that group in a way that's more similar to how you're communicating with external audiences. But then within each of our own individual organizations, we need to translate kind of up and across in ways that really show our leadership, our colleagues, how this work is beneficial and connected to our own internal goals and objectives. And that conversation around translating this work into, you know, our own internal goals is really different than why we should be driving compelling systems change across the board with others who are doing that work directly. So translating is really important. Also just listening. I mean, I never set out to do systems change. I just was listening to what's needed and hearing gaps and then rolling up my sleeves to try to fill them and bring along others who had similar interests or were facing similar obstacles. So I think it's, it's hard when you're leading a collaboration because people expect you to talk a lot, but I really try to listen. We have two ears, one mouth, try to listen more. Bringing diverse perspectives, I think is really important. You know, I think partly why I was pretty effective early on. And I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a senior staff person in a regional office of a federal agency. Like I've had an outsized influence in a way because I didn't come from this world. I wasn't limited by having a background in recycling or solid waste management, or I don't know, to some extent, even the environmental field in general. So when I was exposed to thinking about sustainable consumption and production, and I had this technical background in systems thinking, 
um, I think it just allowed me to connect dots in different ways and ask dumb questions. <laughs> you know, I think not being afraid to ask questions is really important. It can be uncomfortable. Nobody wants to feel stupid. But if you don't understand something and you don't understand the assumptions around something, you're probably not the only one. So I think in many ways, systems change is a product of doing work that identifies and addresses the biggest gaps and obstacles we're facing. And like the byproduct of that is systems change. But I often think like if I had tried to go at any of the work I've done from like we're changing the system, I don't think it would have played out in the same way because it's kind of scary and you're not going to get as much commitment from groups that see that as a risk if you take that on head on. But that's just my thought. Thank you. Then building upon that, two follow-up questions. So the first one is in your career, were there mentors or sponsors that really helped you to learn all the things you just talked about? That is one. And then the other question is, imagine that I'm in my late teens, early 20s, and my passion is making an impact in the world of wasted food, food loss and waste. How would you advise me to channel that energy to really make a difference? Great questions. So I guess I'll start with the latter one, and that's I don't recommend putting experts on a pedestal. Part of why I was so willing to make a foray into working on water quality and leave the food waste world a little bit behind was because I felt like people were deferring to me to such a great degree as an expert. It was depriving us all of the creative space we have in developing new solutions. So I think in general, anyone can be an expert and engage where you feel passionate and think about the system. Think about who's not at the table. Think about where there are the biggest obstacles you can help address. I think another thing to remember is like not everyone has to be an expert. Maybe don't lift those experts up too high. If you really want to drive systems change, the best way to do it is to do work with, not for people. And I think in the hunger relief space, there's a lot of doing work for people. So think about who you're serving Think about what their needs are. Don't make assumptions about what their needs are, including, I mean, just in designing that consumer campaign, you know, I'm a person who eats food. I know what the barriers and benefits are. No, really, really understand what your audience wants and needs. And I'm a big fan of some of the hunger relief work happening in Bamex and Mexico. There are also some organizations out here in Oregon where I live where they're really integrating nutrition and social services and job training and development into alleviating food insecurity. So I don't know if I were a teen wanting to get involved, I would try to influence my local food bank to do more of that work and look for other models and find ways to better educate their donors around what's needed. There's so much donation dumping happening in the food rescue sphere because those organizations don't wanna say no. So they just you know take the cakes and dump them in the compost pile. Um, around mentors and how I've been able to continue to build my kind of systems thinking skill set and collaboration. I had a really great mentor early on who I took formal facilitation training with. I think if you want to do any systems change, being a really skilled facilitator and being able to design meetings that have outcomes, there are plenty of conversations that are really fun to have and can even feel like echo chambers. But if you really want to develop products and tools that others can use and do it with, not for them. Having a strong facilitation background is really helpful. I've also had mentors 
high up at EPA who have helped kind of protect doing innovative work in this space and and help me uh, kind of translate how this work is aligning with our goals and and better navigate some of the political structures and become more politically savvy. You know, I kind of consider anyone I work with as a mentor, you can learn something from anyone. And so many of the folks that lead some of the large nonprofits in the space, whether it's you know World Wildlife Fund or ReFed or World Resources Institute, um, I've been working with their leaders for a long time. And I feel like there's been a lot of mutual mentorship around how to engage within different organizations and within common partners. I've been on several boards and I do a lot of volunteer work in communities. So I think some of those folks have mentored me, some of the environmental justice groups I've worked with. You know, they haven't been formal mentorships, but I've learned so much just watching how how they engage with others and how to kind of infect others with your passion and interest so that they want to work with you. I've watched a lot of presenters, so I always try to think about, and just in general, what do I really like about what I'm seeing and whatever someone's doing and try to adopt a little more of that. I guess in general, the thing I've most learned is that authenticity sells itself and doing collaborative work is a ton of fun. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ashley. A wonderful conversation. Thanks, Michael. For more information about the initiatives Ashley shared during today's interview, be sure to check out the show notes. Thank you for joining us for this episode. If you liked what you heard, like and subscribe to our podcast at foodlaptop.com or wherever you listen to your podcast. And as we close, I invite you to pursue your own bold vision and inspiring actions towards a better food system for us all. See you next time.